really thinking about how we can rebuild our educational system to include the needs of all students. And that includes providing teachers with the support they need to teach them effectively. I mean, the bottom line is it's the students that are suffering. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. A little over a year ago, we spoke with English Learner Success Forum Executive Director Crystal Gonzalez about how educators can and should evaluate instructional materials for multilingual learners. She shared some great tips about how to do this without becoming overwhelmed and how to prioritize diverse representation in decision-making. You can check out that episode anywhere you listen to podcasts by searching for Highest Aspirations. On this episode, we're following up with an interview with Crystal's colleague, Renee Scarron, Senior Director of Content at English Learner Success Forum. Renee's team has been compiling the results of a survey they shared about the challenges teachers are facing with curricula provided by their districts. Some of the results are quite poignant and reflect a need for change to support both teachers and students. Here are some of the questions we'll explore in this episode of Highest Aspirations. What challenges are teachers facing with the curriculum often provided by their districts regarding multilingual learner instruction? What role do stakeholders, such as content creators, educational leaders, and community advocates play in improving curriculum? Where are we already seeing positive changes in inclusive curriculum, and how can we replicate them in other states and districts? We discuss these questions and much more with Renee Scarron. Renee is a senior director of content at English Learner Success Forum, a collaboration of researchers, teachers, district leaders, and funders working to improve the quality and accessibility of instructional materials for English learners. She works with leading educational experts to design and implement a process for reviewing and providing feedback to curriculum developers on the strength of supports for English language learners. Prior to joining ELSF, she worked at Understanding Language at Stanford University, where she was a researcher, professional developer, curriculum developer, and project manager for projects specializing in issues of equity and accessibility for diverse learners. She has a strong background in second language teaching and teacher education, both in the United States and abroad. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Renee Skarin. Renee Scarin, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, we've actually chatted with your colleague, Crystal Gonzalez. That was probably, boy, that was probably a year and a half or two years ago. I'm really bad with time, but it was a while ago now. Um, But we had a chance to catch up with her about high quality instructional materials for multilingual learners, which obviously is a hugely important topic for everybody and particularly for the work that, that you and I are both doing. And I wanted to follow up on this topic um, with you and kind of get a little bit current to where we are now and talk about some connections between or with the teacher shortages and the burnout that we're seeing um, Mm. and how that kind of relates to instructional materials. So we're going to kind of take this in a little bit of a different direction than the one we did with Crystal, um, but I'll link to that episode as well, because that was also really good um, to learn, kind of get the general basics about this. But let's Mm. let's set the stage a little bit Um, as we settle into a new school year. Right. We're recording this in um, mid-September. Where do you think we stand right now uh, on these issues just in general to kind of set the stage and then we'll get specific? Mm. Yeah, well, thanks for raising the issue, Steve. I mean, um, 
Yeah, in our nationwide survey, um, we we did a survey of teachers um, during the pandemic, actually, and we um, found that 70% of the teachers surveyed didn't feel uh, fully prepared to teach multilingual learners. And the pandemic has only exacerbated that issue with multilingual learners um, for various reasons. Um, uh, they're, they're being, they were disproportionately affected by um, the additional gaps in their opportunities to learn during this time. Um, and so teachers, you know, with connectivity issues, with issues of access to devices, with many other issues that they were facing, teachers were really, um, you know, uh, finding it hard to uh, find ways to keep students up to grade level standards. And um, of course, you know, um, learners were finding it hard to learn in a new language virtually. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there are likely a great number of benefits that came out of this time. A lot of resilience was developed and, and a lot of those things can be built on, but teachers are now being tasked with um you know, to to fill what they what they uh, are called learning loss um, mm -hmm. and being asked to accelerate learning for kids so that they can catch up um, when they weren't fully supported to do that before the pandemic. Right. Um, so it's not time for business as usual. Um, teachers, yes, are burning out and you know, it's, it's, um, I think it's just shining a light on um, the ways that they weren't supported before. And now, you know, it's, it's kind of getting to a little bit more of a dire situation with, um, you know, with this task to, to get kids up to speed. Um, so we, we need to find better ways to support teachers. Um, and our, um, you know, mission and vision is that we provide teachers with good quality educative curriculum that helps them create the optimal conditions for learning and um, sort of provides the octane that teachers, um, you know, need uh, with those evidence-based practices um, that provide educators the the, the support to, to get um, kids to where they need to be. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to um, you know, uh, do everything that we can do to provide them with those resources and 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 help them to uh, you know uh, get to where where we need to be. Yeah, absolutely. And so the work that you're doing is extremely important because it hits right you know onto the issues that you just mentioned. Um, I want to go back a little bit to that survey, and I know you've done a lot of research here, and we've done surveys on our own and have found similar results. Although ours have likely been a lot smaller than yours. Um, but but what you basically found is that teachers, as you mentioned, they don't have a positive perception of instructional materials to support multilingual learners. Um, and these are people in the field doing the work that don't feel like they are adequately prepared or have the 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 content or the the materials they need to support uh, multilingual learners. What where do you think specifically um, the gaps are here? I mean, what what are teachers saying? What is it that they that they need? Have you been able to kind of get specific on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we drilled down to some really specific questions around what supports um, teachers uh, are finding lacking in their materials and so forth. Um, I'll start out by saying only 30 percent, 36 percent of teachers surveyed are using their uh, instructional materials provided by their district on a daily basis. Yeah, that's we'll get to that in a second. That sounds familiar, but continue. Uh, so that means 64 percent 
are not. So, and and a lot of the open-ended questions we provided in the survey showed that um, they're creating their own materials because they, or they're using materials that they find on the internet and many cited um, lack of quality supports to meet the needs of their students, especially their multilingual learners. Um, some of the gaps they, they um, cited were um, there's not effective scaffolds for multilingual learners built into the curriculum, so they have to build those in. Um, they said that their materials don't are not culturally responsive or sustaining. Um, mm -hmm. That they reflect um, they don't reflect the diversity of students in their classrooms, which is a huge buzzword right now. Not a buzzword; it's really important, but something that is expected and yet it's not provided. It's not provided. Yeah, um, you know, we we are finding that um, content developers are are making an effort to try and um, shift that in their mm -hmm. materials. But as it stands right now, a lot of the, the uh, materials that are in the hands of teachers are not culturally supportive of, of their students. They said um, also that there's no differentiation supports um, uh, to help them to meet the, uh, the students where they're at. And there's not a lot of support for um, formatively assessing students' language and content um, development. So um, if they don't know how to assess um, how to uh, assess where students are at with their language around the disciplinary subject, they don't know how to get them to where they need yeah. to be. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, there are a, quite a few areas where teachers um, cited lack of support and, um, you know, th that they're building in those things themselves. Right. And I'll highlight three before I get into my next that you, that you just mentioned. I mean, scaffolding, differentiation, and formative assessments. I'm kind of laughing uncomfortably because those are like crucial key things that you need and they need to obviously be research based. Which brings me to my next point. Like when I was teaching, and I don't necessarily think that this is a good thing, what I was doing, but like the 64% of teachers who thought that their curriculum that they were provided was not doing the job when, when they were working with their their students. I was one of those people. I was one of the 64% who created my own instructional materials. It was extremely time consuming. It solved the problem partially. I can't say that it was all research-based and all sort of vetted, um, except by me. Um, it, it was satisfying, but it was unsustainably time consuming. And over time, I think it kind of led to after 17 years of teaching, it was one of the factors I think that 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 made me kind of move on. I mean, I ended up in a really good place and still supporting educators right now. I'm really happy where I am. But it was definitely a part of it. Yeah. Have you have you found you have found that a lot of the teachers are are doing that now? 64 percent, according to your study. What what had been the results on this? I mean, like, is this and when I ask that, I'm asking really in two ways. One, are the materials that they're creating, particularly for multilingual learners in this case, which is even more challenging than what I had to do, um, are they effective, number one? And and number two, is it, um, are they kind of research-based in a way that, you know, it's going to really make a difference in students' lives? Okay, well... Let me start by citing a number. 70% of the teachers that we surveyed do not feel fully prepared to support right. multilingual learners in learning grade level content. So if they are not professionally prepared through uh, their pre-service or in-service 
programs, if they're not professionally prepared to teach them, how can they possibly develop coherent quality supports for multilingual learners in their in the curriculum that they're developing? And it's not to blame teachers at all. Um, they uh, obviously don't feel that those supports are present in the curriculum that they um, that the district has provided, right? So what teachers need is coherence in curriculum and they need they need a curriculum that provides sustained language and content support in a coherently designed unit um and, and uh, uh year curriculum um but i i wonder how well they can accomplish this with all the other responsibilities put on them with the lack of professional development around mm -hmm. the diversity of students in their classroom I mean, some of the teachers we surveyed said they're spending seven to 12 hours a week developing their own materials. That sounds familiar. Teachers. Sounds right. <laughs> right. I remember I did the same thing as a teacher. Um, you know, I, I was trained um, in, in um, language acquisition, so it was a little bit of a different situation. But we're talking about teachers who were not not necessarily trained in language acquisition in any um uh, robust way. And so alongside all of their other bureaucratic and, um, you know, educational duties, they are spending seven, 12 hours a week at home, mm -hmm. you know, trying to come up with searching the internet for uh, content that will meet the standards, the grade level standards, but that those uh, materials are not necessarily coherently designed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we know about multilingual learners is that they need multiple um, opportunities to use language, to be exposed to language, to have opportunities to talk using that that disciplinary language and to develop that language over time within the um, disciplinary content. But, uh, you know, teachers don't necessarily have the expertise to build a kind of curriculum like that, that allows for those multiple opportunities and, and for the, the development of the language needed to grapple with and, and talk about and, um, you know, generate, uh, you know, ideas about content. Um, right, right. Yeah. So let me preface what I'm about to say with repeating what you had said a, a minute ago, which is that this is not teacher's fault and so say they're doing the best they can in whatever category they're in. Right. And I was one of those teachers, um, in, in that, in that one of those groups. And so just to like recap, before I ask you the next question, we have one third approximately of teachers who are using the curriculum that's provided to them by their district, which doesn't seem to meet the needs. 70% of, or, or there, I'm getting the maybe getting the percentages wrong, but it doesn't seem to meet the needs of multilingual learners. Right. Yeah. And so you have two thirds of teachers saying, you know what, I'm going to create my own materials because I feel like I can do better by my students by investing extra time into creating supports for them that may not be, as you said, coherent through no fault of their own, but they they have a, a challenge that they need to solve that is in front of them right now and they're doing their best to solve it. So yeah. given that we have two tracks, right, that 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 really are not necessarily effective. So yeah. given that challenge. What, what role do stakeholders play in solving this problem? So like, I think we can probably take teachers off the table for a minute. We're talking about administrators, PD providers, content creators, the folks who are really trying to get teachers to in a, in a position where they need to be to serve their multilingual learners. Uh, that's a really great question. And, you know, 
Look, before the pandemic, there was a 30-point gap in educational attainment between multilingual learners and students who speak English at home as a primary language at home. So that means that we're not currently providing the resources that teachers need to effectively teach grade-level content to multilingual learners. Um, a 30-point gap is unacceptable, you know? Um, so what role do stakeholders play? Um, I think that First of all, you know, of, of course, we need content developers really paying attention to this and, and um, you know, bringing in the, the right folks, the right experts to help them to design content that meets the needs of the diversity of students in their classrooms. They need people that um, have expertise in cultural responsiveness. How do you design curriculum? Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say, having worked in the field for a long time, most content developers come from white middle class backgrounds. Yeah privileged backgrounds. And I don't say that to, to blame anybody, but I say that to point, you know, to kind of um, shine a light on the fact that we're not bringing a lot of diversity into, um, you know, designing curriculum. So we need to, to um, you know, bring in those folks that have expertise in these areas. We need to bring in folks into the design world that, that understand multilingual learners and how to develop coherent curriculum that is supportive of those learners. Um, so that's one thing. Um, we also need educational leaders at the state level, and they need to ensure that the state adoption lists of approved materials are not only aligned to grade level standards, that's just the base, you know, the basic, but they also need to make sure that those materials are reflective of the diversity of the students in, that are in our, you know, in the United States. And, mm -hmm. and multilingual learner population is growing in, in states like South Carolina in the last 20 years, the uh, the multilingual learner population has grown by 400%. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, um, you know, states that have never seen this diversity, at least, um, you know, uh, non-European diversity, um, you know, um, suddenly uh, have an influx of, of, you know, diverse students from all over the world, and they don't know how to support them. So we need states that are looking at the diversity of students and saying, okay, we need to make sure that we adopt curriculum that is reflective of the cultural needs, the linguistic needs, and the assets uh, of, of the students in our classrooms today. Um, and then educate educational leaders at the district and school level need to develop better adoption criteria. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times the IMETs or, you know, these um, instructional materials evaluation tools don't reflect, they, they you know, they're mostly uh, looking at alignment to grade level standards. Well, that's really important, but we also need to look at, um, is this reflective of my students' needs and assets? Is it inclusive? Does it um, engage the students that are currently in our classrooms? Is it um, supportive of teachers in differentiating instruction for those students and being culturally responsive to those students? And then teachers need quality, job-embedded, curriculum-specific professional development opportunities. Um, and opportunities um, to develop professional communities where they can support each other mm -hmm. in uh, growth in their instructional practices. 
So there's a lot that can be done across the board to um, make sure that we get better materials into the hands of teachers and kids and that we, um, you know, uh, support teachers in, in good instructional practices that are reflective of our, of our kids. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a world that should all be connected. There shouldn't be silos, right? As I, as I heard you speak and kind of go from state education agencies to local education agencies, to districts, to teachers, to school, I mean, that that needs to be connected in some way. And I think historically, a lot of these decisions have been made in silos and maybe in some ways we could have gotten away with it, although it probably still wasn't the best situation because, um, you know, like you say, you mentioned a great example of South Carolina that is, that has really, really uh, become uh, a, a very different demographic uh, in in a very in a very positive way. I mean, it should be something that, and we talk about taking an asset based approach all the time. But at the same time, if you have a sort of core of teachers and educators who are not trained, no fault of their own, in this, you got to make some you got to make some adjustments. I mean, just talking about state education agencies and local education agencies, I'm curious. I, I'm I'm guessing that you have, but have you shared these survey results with them? And if so, what what has been what has been the reaction? I'd love to hear kind of what, um, you know, what the reaction was to that or has been. Yeah. So, um, I will say that we're at the beginning stages of sharing these results. Um, we, um, have a content developer, uh, webinar coming up in October where we, we will be inviting, um, uh, leaders, um, in the, uh, content developer world. So those publishers, um, you know, the, the, um, content leads and CAOs and those folks making decisions in those, um, content developer orgs, we'll be inviting them to the table and, and presenting these results to them in October. I believe it's October 3rd. Um, and we have, um, begun to share those, uh, results with states. We, um, published, an article, um, a research brief in EdTrust West um, uh, research uh, uh, on their website. Mm -hmm. And that kind of lays out the California results. They're very um, concerned right now with what's happening with the math framework and advocating for uh, the math framework to be very reflective of the the students that we serve in California. So um, we've published there and we are about to release this month um, our nationwide survey results in a research report um, that will be published on the English Learners Success Forum website. Um, we will um, then be sharing more widely those results in various webinars and op-eds. We've, we have, um, you know, EdSource has an op-ed. We, we have published some op-eds uh, thus far around those results, but we will be publishing those results um, more widely um, as we, um, you know, sort of go through the steps of, uh, you know, disseminating. Um, and um, we we are working with state um, leaders right now um, in, in various states, Massachusetts, Delaware, Rhode Island, um, and we've been sharing those with our close partners, um, the states that we are working with, and we will continue to do so. Um, we will be uh, we will at, be at the EdTrust uh, West Equity Forum uh, coming up in a week's time, where we'll be sharing those with advocates and educational leaders at that forum, and we'll continue to find venues to share these results and to really, um, you know, hope hopefully. Um, generate some um, 
you know, a little octane around, you know, hey, we need to really make sure that we're paying attention to um, adoption and that we're, um, you know, no more business as usual. Like we really need to kind of um, step up our uh, adoption you know, uh, criteria development, make sure that we're doing the right thing on, on that end for students. Yeah. And I mean, I think you, for what it's worth, I think you're doing all the right things. I mean, it, it's not an accident that I found out the work that, I mean, I found, found out about it through EdSource just because I have my finger on the pulse of what's happening as many do. Um, and in some small way, I hope that this conversation and whatever comes from it, um, helps to kind of amplify that and give you a little bit more octane as you've, as you've put it, because I think it's really, really important. Um, and we'll link to, as you, you know, we always share uh, the information and the work that you're doing on our, on our community brief, which goes out every Friday to anybody who's a member of our community. Um, so we'll continue to do that. And we'll continue to amplify any of the, um, the, the resources that you're putting out there. And if, if you, if anything that you have just mentioned has already happened in the past, when people are listening to this podcast, we'll make sure we link to it, um, so that they can access it. Um, so you did mention the, the California math framework and, and I know that's kind of a bright spot, at least the beginning, perhaps of a bright spot. So what is the key to success of programs like these or at least getting them off the ground and, and how can they sort of be replicated in, in other places? I mean, what, how is that a bright spot and, and, and what can people learn from it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the California math framework, I mean, we're really excited about what's happening there. Um, we know that many of our advocate um, advocates in the field have been really pushing on uh, the framework developers and the California DOE to ensure that the diversity of students are reflected in that and that more equity, um, more attention to equity is brought to uh, math um, math teaching and learning, including um, the creation and adoption of um, instructional materials that are reflective of uh, the many, <laughs> um, the uh, huge population of multilingual learners in, in California. Um, so, and and one of the, the bright spots there too is the, the um, taking an assets-based perspective on multilingualism and multiliteracy and um, really um, asking, you know, uh, educational organizations to really support this idea of multilingualism, that multilingualism is um, a benefit. It's an asset. It's, mm -hmm. it, it not only helps individuals um, at, in many different ways, but it also supports the state in, and um you know, to uh, not only celebrating diversity, but, um, you know, making our our um, um, system stronger. So I think, you know, there's there's that the celebration of that and the um, support for that. But um, it also asks um, content developers to step up to the plate. Um, chapter 13 is on instructional materials. And it says, you know, look, this is this is what we need to pay attention to in instructional materials development and um, equitable um, access to curriculum should be a priority. Right. And so how can we do that? We make sure that those materials are 
um, reflective of, you know, they're culturally responsive, they provide differentiation supports, they, um, uh, you know, they, they include scaffolds for language, they pay attention to, you know, the new, um, the next generation science standards, as well as um, state standards are very um, uh, supportive of they're very language rich, I will mm-hmm. say. They ask teachers to um, uh, teach, uh, you know, uh, skills that re- are very linguistically heavy, right? Um, if you're arguing, you really need to know how to argue well, right, within a discipline. So right. how how do we um, then build those um, supports into curriculum and ensure that teachers are provided with the the educative supports they need to understand how to help students to learn how to argue within, um, you know, math learning. Um, So, you know, the, I think, you know, if we use that as sort of like, um, you know, as a sort of guiding post, you know, for what the rest of the states can do, I think, Um, What this tells me, too, is that, you know, advocates need to be involved. They need to put pressure on um, these educational organizations to ensure that, you know, the um, students' needs and um, assets are met and um, understood. So, you know, the the role of advocacy organizations is really important. Um, And, um, you know, just the, the, you know, kind of putting, uh, you know, creating a set of um, guiding posts for those developing and teaching, adopting um, content that is reflective of the needs of students. Right. Yeah. And and that kind of leads me to everything you just said leads me kind of my last two questions, and maybe I'll kind of preview them because I think they're connected. I didn't necessarily see the connection before, but now I do based on what you just said. The, the first question I want to ask you is about is about funding. And then I want to talk a little bit after that about advocacy, because I think they are connected, um, maybe mm-hmm. perhaps now more than ever. And the, the first piece of this is that we're dealing with all these challenges. You've said a few times that it can't be business as usual anymore. And if it's not going to be business as usual anymore, it's going to require an investment, both a financial investment, then an investment in time and an investment in advocacy and everything else simultaneously while that's all going on, there's a lot of funding out there right now and a lot of it in the form of ESSER funds. Um, there's been, in fact, we we uh, interviewed two folks from TNTP uh, a couple weeks ago about policy analysts about ESSER funds. And I think it's something like, according to the, some of the research they've done, something like 7 million, don't quote me on that number, but there is a huge number of English learners, multilingual learners in districts who have not used any of their ESSER funding to support multilingual learner programs. So that so the money's out there. It's not being used in many cases in the right way. Some some folks have cracked the code, some districts, and they're doing it really well. So ha- my question to you is, ha- it, to solve the problems that we are talking about, have districts adequately tapped into those funds to, to mitigate this lack of high-quality instructional materials um, and, and the burnout that it's causing for, for a lot of teachers who are spending all of this time trying to create these materials while also teaching at a very challenging time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, from what we're seeing, um, we are not seeing ESSER funds being used um, for um, 
sort of um, bolstering our systems to create better um, opportunities for multilingual learners. I think a lot of people, a lot of folks right now, and rightly so, are focused on social emotional learning. They're mm-hmm. focused on um, other issues. Um, but as you said, um, we need to look systemically at what was going on before the pandemic, what the pandemic shone the light on, and um, what we need to do to systemically change to support the needs of all of our students. So I, I you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think um, we are set up to do that um, at the moment. And I think that's why people are at a loss of how to you know, use those ESSER funds effectively. Um, but um, so when I say systemically, I'm thinking about, okay, um, where, uh, where do we see um, students were, were suffering before the pandemic. Um, we know that there were inadequate materials, that um, teachers had inadequate training to teach multilingual learners, that um, states were not necessarily providing them with the resources that they need to, to do that effectively, and um, that we um, were not seeing a decrease in those educational opportunity gaps um, for students, despite many years of, of efforts on the parts mm-hmm. of teachers and educational leaders. So we need to think really, um, you know, we, we need to, you know, put our, put our heads together and think about like, how can we create a system that um, is addressing those issues, maybe kind of dismantling some of the current structures and um, really thinking about how we can rebuild our educational system to include the needs of all students. And that includes providing teachers with the support they need to teach them effectively. I mean, the bottom line is it's the students that are suffering, right? And those are the, 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 you know, that's what we're trying to do here is teach students, right? So, um, you know, how can we, you know, the nitty gritty is like, how do we get down to creating systems that are supportive and uh, high quality instructional materials and um, professional learning, curriculum specific professional learning that helps, um, you know, uh, teachers to understand how to teach the diversity of students. That's just like a baseline. Right. Right. Yeah. And and like, so everything you just mentioned, again, kind of leads me to this next point about advocacy and we can talk about advocacy in the form of advocacy groups and you mentioned the importance of those and those are crucial because teachers are so busy that to try to do some of that work um is 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 difficult but given that we could probably be using more of these funds than we are um to help support projects like the ones that you're talking about uh, or initiatives like the ones that you're talking about how would you recommend if you're I'm listening to this podcast right now, I'm an EL specialist, I'm a teacher, uh, I'm a principal, I'm someone in a school who's concerned with with multilingual learners. And so I'm trying to get an idea of what I can do to get high quality instructional materials for multilingual learners into my school without going crazy myself as a teacher or without knowing that all of my teachers are going crazy trying to create their own stuff. What can 
those folks do to help maintain this momentum right now? I mean, what's like the first step to try to help get a seat at the table and the advocacy table so that we can hold content creators and others accountable for their role in this work? That's a really good question. And I think, um, I think, you know, teachers and educators that are really concerned with, um, you know, what's happening in their system and how they can improve the system. Um, I, first of all, find out when your adoptions are happening, right? Um, when, when are your math adoptions happening? When are your um, ELA science adoptions happening? And, and then who's involved in, in that process? Who's at the table? Are um, representatives of the students that, that we're serving at the table, are they um, EL specialists at the table? They understand the needs of their multilingual learners um, better, than, better than anybody. So how many of those people are at the table um, making helping make those decisions? And then what are your criteria for adoption? Um, what are you... Um, you know, what tools are you using? What processes are you going through? I've heard of cases where, you know, publishers have flown um, teachers down to Mexico and Tijuana and, and said, you know, let's party and let me show you our materials in the meantime. Um, and I've, I've heard also just, you know, okay, the, the, you know, the three textbooks that we're going to choose from for math are in the library, go make it, you know, go look at them and you can put in a vote or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the, um, the processes for adoption are all over the place. Yeah. Um, yep. some, there are some rigorous processes um, at some districts, but, you know, in, in some States um, and a lot more people are paying attention to this um, than, than um, previously. But I think we need to look, take a long, hard look or who's at the table. What are our processes? Are our criteria rigorous? What tools are we using? How much time and resources are we, um, you know, in this, you know, like uh, instructional materials adoption, it's a relatively cheap fix. Um, if you do it right, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, um, in the large scheme of things, instructional materials, you know, you have a textbook for seven years. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, we get a lot of use out of it if right. we do it right. Um, and it can be very supportive of teachers if we do it right. But um, so, you know, are we doing our due diligence and making sure that process is coherent, rigorous, robust, that the right people are at the table. Um, you know, advocacy organizations should be shine a light, uh, shining a light on curriculum adoptions and saying, hey, we're going to make sure that you, these materials are the right materials for our kids. We should yeah. have a say in this, right? We're taxpayers. We're paying for these textbooks. So everybody should be, you know, scrutinizing this process and making sure that it's done right. Yeah, all really great points. And I'll just say, if I could kind of go back in time to when I first started teaching, uh, there's definitely some changes that I would make as a teacher and ask where, you know, <laughs> what we're doing here. Because for me, and this is one that you didn't mention in terms of criteria and adoption, it was like, it was always like, hey, we have like two weeks to spend all this money. What do you guys want? And and meanwhile, you're you're in the middle of maybe it's the beginning of the year or you're busy because you're just teaching and you don't have the time that you need to really get a seat at the table and really think about it. It was always kind of a last minute decision. And if I'm being perfectly honest and I'll be totally transparent, I'm a little bit worried about that with ESSER funding because at a certain point, they're talking about extending the deadline, but there is going to be a deadline at some point. 
And I think the districts and the schools that aren't really thinking about this strategically in a way that we've talked about um, are going to be in that position. And that's not a good position to be in. And I've seen it, you know, just with you can't just buy a program. I mean, I'm very proud of the work that we do at Elevation. But what makes our products successful is districts that are that have a goal and a mission, just like any other product that they're that they're using. And I just worry about that a little bit. So I would encourage kind of teachers who are maybe in my position when I first started to really try to pull back the curtain of what's going on there and get a seat at the table, make sure there are experts there, because in many cases, you know, it's just not happening. And again, it could be a result of capacity or just everybody's busy. And, but these are really important decisions. So I appreciate you, you kind of bringing up those points. Well, I'd love, I'd love to add one more thing. And, and that is parent involvement. Like what are parents saying? And are we making an effort to reach out to are the parents of our multilingual learners and finding out what they need and what they're they're um, experiencing with their children's curriculum and are they able to even help their kids with the curriculum that is being provided? Um, are is the curriculum um, you know provided in the language of the home? You know, mm-hmm. is the curriculum or is there an effort to reach out to parents and? and, uh, you know, get their support with, you know, teaching kids content. And if, if uh, parents don't even know what's happening in the classroom, don't even know what their kids are learning, um, because they, there's access issues, there's um, language barriers, and we haven't made an effort to, you know, cross those barriers, um, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, again, you know, it's business as usual, but, um, content developers need to play a big role in that. Um, and I think they're starting to recognize that. And there's some efforts to create materials, um, you know, that, that, uh, that go home and help um, parents to understand what's happening with their kids learning, but, um, a lot more needs to be done in that yeah. area. Too. Yep. Need more seats at the table. And they need to be full for sure. Um, okay, great. Well, as we wrap this up, Renee, I have two additional questions for you. These are questions that I ask everybody. And the first one um, is a question that I love asking because it helps me build my own personal library and hopefully it helps others as well. But um, I'm curious if there's a book or any other resource that's kind of influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with listeners. Yeah, I would love to share um, this book that is kind of like my Bible. And you can kind of see that (laughs) I've got a lot of uh, little uh, sticky notes at pages that are really um, that, you know, uh, so this book is for for people listening. Renee is showing me a book right now that definitely has a lot of uh, sticky notes in it. (laughs) What's it called, called, Renee? It's called Amplifying the Curriculum, and it's edited by um, Aida Walkey and George Bunch. Um, Aida Walkey is with West Ed. Yep. Um, she's the the developer of the QTEL pro- program, Quality Teachers for English, uh, Quality Teaching for English Learners. And George Bunch te- teaches at UC Santa Cruz, and this um, really helps. Uh, folks to understand how you design learning opportunities for multilingual learners in our classrooms, Um, meaning that uh, one of the big, you know, sort of uh, ideas in there is um, coherence across the curriculum, language development over time, spiraled opportunities to grapple with language and content and, and lots of other things. And each of the chapters 
in addition to the, you know, sort of main uh, theoretical kind of basis for um, that comes in the first chapter, uh, the rest of the chapters are written by practitioners mm -hmm. who have utilized this model in uh, various classrooms, um, science, um, history, ELA math, um, and help to understand, you know, kind of that, that architecture that is supportive of the diversity of students in your classroom and the architecture that is, um, you know, primarily it's about coherence, right? Mm -hmm. It's providing a coherent learning experience and engaging learning experience an exciting learning experience and an agentive learning experience. We didn't talk a lot about agency. Um, that was another thing that we found in our survey is that teachers said, no, I, my curriculum does not offer, you know, uh, opportunities for students to learn autonomously or agentively right, or to right. really reflect on their own learning um, very well, um, their own language learning as well as content learning. And so this is a really provides a model for like how we can do that effectively, create those coherent learning and exciting and engaging learning experiences. So that's my plum for Aida and, and George Bunch's book. Well, that's great. And I think that fills, like you said, a lot of the gaps in our conversation, because I could definitely go down a rabbit hole right now and talk for another hour about structure versus agency and how students need agency yeah. and metacognition and everything else. But I won't. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> yeah. um, that's great. That. And and I also love books that are set up that way, kind of like uh, set up by, you know, major um, important experts in the field and then have that practitioner point of view throughout. Uh, those are always my favorites. So thank you for sharing that. And then my last question is... Um, you mentioned a lot of resources and a lot of opportunities to learn more about what you're doing. I think you mentioned we'll link to, but um, in general, what's the best way for people? Like, is there a one-stop shop where people can go to learn more about the work that you're doing or a couple of places you'd like to mention? Yeah. Um, well, uh, so uh, English Learner Success Forum, the, the organization that I work um, with. It's a forum of educational leaders, whether it be researchers, practitioners, um, uh, uh, you know, um, educational leaders um, on the, the bureaucratic side. Um, it's a forum of folks that have come together and created um, a, a set of guidelines for um, uh, quality instructional materials that are inclusive of the needs of uh, multilingual learners. And we use those guidelines. We engage lots of people in the field to, um, to help content developers to iteratively um, improve their materials to be more reflective of, of those students. Um, and so, so we have um, ELA math science guidelines. Um, we are now, uh, we've now developed ELD guidelines for um, designated ELD materials. Um, and so those are really important, but we also have um, for you know, educational leaders looking to kind of really think more deeply about the criteria for adoption. We have what are called benchmarks of quality. Mm -hmm. And those benchmarks, that this is a tool that educational leaders can take away with them. Um, they're freely available on our website and they can take away with them and look at their own criteria and their um, adoption processes and see if they are reflective of these um, research-backed um, uh, research quality uh, indicators. 
Um, so to just kind of do that crosswalk and make sure that their criteria are reflective of that diversity. Um, so those are freely available. Our guidelines are freely available. We have lots of resources on our website. We have a set of do's and don'ts for teachers in teaching multilingual learners. And these are written by researchers and practitioners. So it, each one is authored by both a researcher. Uh, uh, for example, we might have uh, Jeff Zwiers, mm -hmm. you know, write about conversations in the classroom alongside a teacher who's actually teaching multilingual learners. And they write a set of best practices around um, conversations like effective academic conversations in the classroom. So that's just one example of a do's and don'ts that we have on our website. But there's lots of juicy resources for both um, educational leaders and for content developers um, there. And, um, you know, folks can feel free to my my information is up on the website. People can, uh, you know, uh, feel free to reach out to me at rscarin at elsuccessform.org. Um, my email is on the website um, or to any of our other um, uh, directors or leaders. Perfect. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I've been on the website quite a bit and it is really, really useful. So I'd highly recommend it. And the um, the keyword that you said there's a lot of free resources there, but they're not only free, but they're also high quality. So that's kind of what we what we look for to make it equitable for folks. So there's a good entry point there for anybody who's interested. Um, and we'll link to that so that folks can find it. And Renee, with that, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. This was really a great conversation and a nice follow-up to the one that we had with Crystal, um, a little bit more current. And I'm definitely interested in seeing, learning more about the work that you're doing moving forward and where this all goes, because I think we're just at the beginning here. But if you're listening, let's help keep the the momentum going here, because it's going to take, take a village to make this work happen. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve, for the opportunity to talk about something I'm very passionate about and, um, you know, to, to uh, continue to beat the drum for our multilingual learners in our classrooms and um, better, um, better classroom experiences for them. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.